0: Rub wait, some wait. funk
1: on it. Maybe say this year yeah, the that's Eldritch, what I was on thinking. the Eldritch. <gasps> yeah, yeah, okay. We're on a brainwave here.
0: Woo, okay. This year on the Eldritch Lorecast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: know. He can cut my audio out, so it doesn't matter.
2: What's a game out there that is fun, even though you may be sitting and watching for 10 minutes while between turns? Is there such a game? Uh,
1: how do you choose adventures that you're going to run the next adventure for your group?
0: Computer Town Australia. Wing dang roll wing dang I
1: dread to even bring this up to be honest Sometimes YouTubers chomp at the bit
2: D- Let's not move on, let's talk about this for a second
1: No filter if- Merwin, here we go
0: <laughs> Wow, a Witcher watch
2: You
1: should go listen to Mastering Dungeons
0: The monk has a lot of cool different things that they get Whether they are powerful or not is a different question <laughs>
1: <laughs> and- Oh, Dale, just tone it down a bit there, would you? <laughs>
0: All that and more right now
1: And welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one tabletop RPG podcast in all of 2024. That's right, I'm planting the flag right now. We are recording this, depending on where you are in the world, on the 1st of January 2024. So this is a fresh new podcast. That's right, we're shedding our old skin, we're shedding the 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 shadows of the past. I'm failing at remembering analogies, so I'm just gonna skip that. My name's Ben Byrne. If your news resolution is to catch a new podcast and this is your first time listening to the LawCast, I am joined, as always, by James Hake, Sean Merwin, Dale Kingsmill, and Dale, I need to bring up my run sheet because I have forgotten the opening question. Wait, no, it's so obvious. The question <laughs> yeah. is, what is one of your goals mm-hmm. uh, for 2024 or maybe yeah, something yeah. you're looking forward to?
0: Um, I don't have any great goals at this point. I think I just let myself down if I create an actual goal. Okay, Um, sad. No, 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 no. It has happy edges to it. Because that means that like my most successful resolutions have been like, I just want to embrace the musical theater nerd within. I feel like I've been Mm. neglecting her. And then that year was COVID. And so I just listened to a lot of Broadway cast albums on Spotify and I was the only one who fulfilled my resolution. So, you know. (laughs) Winner, winner, so chicken dinner. Fault. But um, yeah, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually caused it so that I would win New Year's resolutions. Um, I think the Cats out.
3: 2019 caused it, and you maybe invoked <laughs> that. <laughs> that's true. Yeah,
0: that's it. Um, but this year I'm thinking something really simple. I, I think I want to play in more games.
1: Mm, fair. That is fair. Uh,
0: so it is spoke so much to be. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yep. Uh, Sean Merwin, what about yourself Uh,
2: creatively? I think my goal has been what it's been for the last 20, whatever years I've been writing RPG content and that's continue to focus on creating experiences that are fun and memorable. Don't worry so much about the nitty gritty of the rules, although you do have to do that and don't focus too much on, you know, this or that. Think about uh, the experiences that your work creates and, and focus on those. I'm looking forward to a lot of cool things in 2024, none of which I can talk about, but hopefully (laughs) when those things lift off, we are going to set the RPG industry on its ear.
1: Cross fingers. Uh, James Haig, speaking of crossing fingers, you don't need to because your goal for 2024 is?
3: To work on more things that I came up with from start to finish. I've done a lot of work okay. over the past couple of years of like achieving dreams that other people have set out to accomplish. Being a gun for hire, and uh, I've done some great work doing that. I've loved it, but I want to make stuff all of my own. Yeah, that was supposed to be my thing last year, and it just kind of tumbled down into into the pit and never got never got uh, done. So I'm dredging it back up. This is going to be the year personal projects. Also, I yeah okay. I I want to run my game weekly. Last year, for basically the exact same reason, uh, my my D and D game slipped from weekly to bi-weekly to monthly to bi-monthly, and I felt like I was losing my mind the whole time. So, weekly games, <laughs> personal projects, more fun.
1: My goal is more or less the same. We have, I think, I can say it here, it's a it's a little bit of an exclusive clue. Uh, we've got big plans for Grim Hollow coming in twenty twenty four. Uh, I'm not going to speak specifically to what those are, but I am excited to sink my teeth into that starting this week, uh, hitting the ground running. So um, I am looking forward to uh, sinking my teeth into Grim Hollow in a way that I haven't been able to up until now, but I'm I'm, I'm chomping at the bit, so to speak. Speaking of chomping at the bit... I dread to even bring this up, to be honest. You know, sometimes YouTubers chomp at the bit to be able to throw out the, the most clickbaity, quickest, most attention-grabby uh, headline that they can. Um, and one specific YouTuber decided to accuse Wizards of the Coast of using AI art again uh, in their uh, artwork for the 2024 uh, promotion that they did at PAX Unplugged. Did Wizards use AI art? No. All right, moving on. (laughs) That was basically the news.
2: Um. Let's not move on. Let's talk about this for a second.
1: No filter, Merwin. Here we go. If
2: if you are going to criticize something publicly, know what the hell you're talking about. Otherwise, STFU. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. People, People are out here working hard to create. Work just as hard as the people who you are criticizing on whatever you are doing. Do your due Mm -hmm. diligence. If you you want to be the reporter, be the reporter. Do your due diligence. Uh, We used to cancel reporters who made up stories, who made up sources. Uh, And those those were the days, right? Those were the days where you were accountable for the things you said publicly. Uh, Let's do that again, because I'm sure that the person who did this will be able to work again uh, the artist that this person accused has gone through hell. Mm. Uh, so mm. think, of, think, think twice. That's that's my two cents. Uh,
1: yeah, there. No, I think there is a a larger conversation that can be had here about yes, Dale, across my arms. Um, uh, in agreement, uh, it can be both agreement and disagreement. Um, I, there is definitely a a bigger deep dive that can be gone into here, particularly around YouTube, and I feel that it got particularly intense last year around the pressure because you're competing for folks' attention, you're competing for clicks, you want to get people to click on your video. Um, and I am e- eternally infuriated personally, and this is not like I'm not saying this from a higher ground, FYI. Like people will note when the law cast sometimes has slightly more clickbaity titles. Because, you know, to grow the audience, you kind of need to play that game a little bit as well. But I try to temper uh, what we do um, to be reasonable to to people's expectations of what's in the, the video. When I see YouTube videos that are just like the X controversy just got worse or this company is burning down or... Uh, this person's career is over, you know, just whatever like rage baity kind of uh, uh, thing, and I see that it's working for that channel. Few things upset me more um, uh, in the lack of accountability and the lack of and and rewarding basically uh, falsifying information or misrepresenting information uh, to get people upset. Yeah, mm-hmm. I,
0: I find it. Ugh. I don't usually blame a channel for going in a clickbait, uh, direction. You know, it's not something that I like and it's not something that I do. Um, but I'm also in a position where I can afford to not do that. Right. Mm. Versus someone who's like, I need to get views. I need to get the algorithm on site. So I don't necessarily blame someone for going clickbait. What I do think is, is not as, uh, deeply important, but has become important in a lot of people's minds is wanting to be the one to break the story, right? Because yeah, that's okay. exciting. And after the OGL crisis in particular in this industry, there's a little bit of celebrity that comes with it. You know, we, we saw a lot of people who they broke the story. They're a hero, right? And there was a lot of kind of um, lifting up of that. Whereas I think we on the law cast, certainly we're, we're usually the, the news comes out a day or two after we record. And so then we end up having this buffer of about a week where we can think about it we can gather more information we can see how the the news lands before we give our opinions and it's it's weirdly a, a great blessing on our podcast that we mm. have that time to uh, to develop thoughts before we share them
3: yes we're the sensible news source which <laughs> <laughs> maybe not
1: <laughs> i can i can be pretty hyperbolic i don't know that i'd go that far but i tell you what i would very genuinely recommend Um, My New Year's resolution is to stop uh, pretending to hate on things I actually love. So I'm going to start right now. Go, if you're not already listening to Mastering Dungeons, you should go listen to Mastering Dungeons, Sean's podcast with Taos, because that is some of the most. A sincerity resolution. Yeah, exactly. That is some of the most um, uh, uh, level-headed, informed, uh, and, uh, I think, you know, it's kind of like listening to mastering dungeons when news breaks in the RPG industry is legitimately a balm to the hist, like the burn of the hysteria that, you know, Twitter or other YouTube channels can whip themselves up into. Um, and I just really appreciate the, the much more representative of the facts kind of, uh, discussions that Sean and Taos have over there. So, um, go check them out if you're not already subscribed to
2: mastering dungeons. I appreciate that. And When we review things and say bad things about them, even though we're informed, it it kills me. It kills me because I know there are people behind this, right? We went through the Planescape adventure and we were not gentle with it. Uh, But we know the people that wrote it. But still, we tried to present it in a way that got to the truth uh, while respecting the work itself. And like I said, doing as much work to get the information as the people who are creating the content do.
0: And it's worth saying, I mean, Luke Lavablade in chat just said, I really appreciate the few times when the LawCast has uh, immediately recorded after something happened, you intentionally say, this just happened, we don't have all the facts, which is something mm. that Ben says every time. And that is, mm. uh, it's, it's a really great phrase to put out there immediately. And I also appreciate whenever we are being negative about something, particularly if I get carried away, Short always comes in afterwards and says, But just so you know,
3: like, there's a bunch of people
0: working hard, and that's this is just our taste. And like, he always (laughs) meters it down to a very reasonable place. mm
2: -hmm. And it's why it's great to do a podcast with four knowledgeable people because when someone is talking about a topic that I know nothing about, I will sit here for 40 minutes of a 60 minute show and not say a word because it's not my place to spout off when I don't have any facts. I'm learning from you smart folks about anime and and actual plays and you know video games and, and things that I know nothing about. Uh, it, so it, it is okay not to, to talk sometimes and to listen.
0: Let's hope that I can learn from you how to not talk for a little bit.
2: <laughs>
0: Something I know nothing about. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was like, that's, uh, your job's not to spout off randomly. That's mine. Um, hopefully, we can have a, a much more positive kind of 2024 that's not steeped in the, um, you know, like, <sighs> stuff's going to happen. Uh, what I'm hoping for isn't that, like, no bad things will happen because, you know, stuff's going to happen. But just that, you know, there's less of that air of controversy and, and kind of grandstanding uh, is in the RPG suspicion. space.
3: I feel that has kind of mm. taken over this space in 2022 and 2023. Everyone's kind of suspicious of everyone, especially as misinformation becomes easier to spread. And, you know, the safety net of experts, like a sort of critical mass of experts on any one platform. The, you know, the dark age of of, of Twitter, et cetera, has made it very hard to get a lot of people being like, actually that's wrong. And throw a fire blanket on something before it, you know, Goes wild, mm. Mm. so uh, I, I, I just you know, <laughs> mm. my optimism and my realism are are fighting madly in the corner over here, just being like, man, I really hope that people take their time this year, while also realizing sure. that probably people will take less time than ever. So you know, if you're hearing this, take this as your cue to. Stifle that instinct to go knee jerk outrage when it happens.
0: I think the new rule should be that if you're going to make a clickbait headline or title for something, it has to also be a clever pun. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, all right. right. And we get to (laughs) decide what clever means.
0: Yeah. You have to come to us.
2: Exactly.
1: (laughs)
0: The email is podcast at (laughs) ghostfiregaming.com.
1: Speaking of which, um, uh, having gone through the holiday period, uh, not a lot of other news broke. uh, So we are going to jump into some listener emails that have been sitting in our inbox for a little while. Um, uh, The podcast email address, once again, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Or you can come hang out with us on Twitch and ask us questions directly there. So if you have a question, ask it in the chat and maybe Dale will spot it because I'm terrible at keeping up with the Twitch chat. Um, First question coming in from Keel. Uh, Keel asking, choosing an adventure to run, perhaps particularly pertinent at the start of a new year um, where we might be starting our new adventures. And, and you know, to expand this question a little bit, maybe we can expand into systems as well. Uh, but Keel saying that when they're coming up with uh, a new adventure to run, they usually pitch three options to their players and let the players vote uh, on which one they think should be the next adventure that they do. Um, with so much content being released so quickly, uh, so many new adventures coming from third parties, first party, uh, you know, all over the shop, uh, it can be hard to stay focused or excited for just one adventure very quickly. Thank you, Savera for the subscription. I appreciate that very much. Uh, how do
3: you choose adventures that you're going to run the next adventure for your group? I just started a new adventure, uh, right before the new year. I was getting a jump on my new year's resolution. I just started running dragon heist. For the Ooh. first time since I was playtesting it in development, um, I chose that adventure because I love that adventure. I've run it before, and uh, it's it's been several years, and I miss it. Um, Which
0: season? Which season?
3: Well, that's a good question. <laughs> when I when we were when we were developing it, I ran kind of a mishmash of. Three seasons. Uh, I had Jarlaxle, the Castle Lanterns, and the Xanathar Guild all in action at once. It was only it was only Manchun and the Zents that uh, stayed out of it. And this time, I'm bringing Manchun in in a big way because two of my three players are Zentrim aligned. So we're going to bring in that factional conflict and all of that. Actually. The reason I bring this up is because I, I just want to say, if you're having a hard time choosing which adventure to run, pick Heist <laughs> Because, <laughs> because, uh, one, I'm very biased towards it, but two, because it's five levels of adventure, it's so short. It's a, it, right. it takes a big replayable cross-section of those most common levels of d d play, and uh, it gives you a lot of options to work within it. I think it's very easy to get distracted by Enormous sprawling adventures, but there's one thing I've learned in running it's that f- fractional amounts of those big long campaigns ever reach a satisfying conclusion. Uh, we all wanted to, right? That's the dream. The five year mega campaign, mm. everyone becomes, you know, deeply personally entwined with their character. We talk about it for the rest of our lives. I mean, that's fantastic. Let that grow organically out of a smaller campaign. I think even if you get a big campaign, if you get a, like a princess of the apocalypse or a descent into a or something like that, try and chunk it out into the first five levels and think, think of it as, you know, a season one of a Netflix show that has, you know, 10% odds of being renewed. (laughs) Right. Just like make, make it so that you can have a huge satisfying climax at the end of it. And so you've all go home being like, that was the best campaign I've ever played let's do a sequel and then just mm. keep on going with that. So I, 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 if I were to condense this into one sentence, it's pick short campaigns or chunk a big campaign into small ones. Look for campaigns that let you do that easily.
2: Yeah, that, that's great advice because the question says that Kiel usually pitches three options to the players and lets them vote, which is what I, well, I do as well when we go from a, to a new campaign. But do what James said, which is not just say, okay, this adventure is a, an urban mystery. This is a you know world-spanning, whatever. But do it, this is a short adventure. This is a medium adventure. This is a huge campaign. Mm. And let them pick on that uh, level as much as on what's in the story. Because you know your players, and you know that you have that player that as soon as you get three adventures into this campaign... Is going to be scrolling through the DM's Guild or Drive Through or Wizards uh, D&D Beyond and saying, oh, look at that. Uh, and if you have players like that, make a campaign that switches uh, themes or switches levels or switches uh, something that will make it fresh. Um, or create a campaign in that way where you play for five levels and you go back and you play different first level characters that do something else within that story then you can jump back to your sixth level character that's a way if you have characters players who are hard to rein in to use their enthusiasm as a tool rather than as a bludgeon
3: if i can hmm. make one more highly biased recommendation coming out this year is Saga of the Seasons, a Valachan clan's adventure that in in a different way than Dragon Heist is split into four seasons of play, except these ones are played sequentially, spring through winter, and they are divided up into seasons like the year or like a season of TV, and they make a very nice Mm. onboarding, offboarding points. I think you could play each one of those seasons as a standalone campaign or all together.
1: Especially because they're so like you're doing different things in each season, you know, spring where the adventure starts is the, uh, you know, you're kind of exploring Valica, establishing your, your settlement, getting to know the NPCs in your settlement, as well as getting to know each other, most likely. And then when summer hits, you go out and start raiding, uh, in the Southlands, in the Burak empire, um and what's north for the burak empire but south for valica and uh you know the 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 pace and the tone and everything kind of switches gears and then when you come back it's autumn and you've got to switch gears again i think that's a, a really great kind of segmented adventure i've been reading it a bit lately i it's probably going to be the next thing i run but i probably won't be able to run it for like a year because we're just uh running citadel at the moment and we go at a very slow pace so um, was the, huge. <laughs> y- well, I'm not even running it from the start either. I'm sort of uh, picking up from as if they've already emerged out of the the city below and and uh, uh, just adventuring through Astoria. That I, technically, I haven't even started from Chapter 3 yet, which mm-hmm. is what I was planning to pick up from, or Chapter 4, sorry, um, Episode 4. Um, uh, the, the, just If I can quickly jump in, quick bit of advice, I, I would say as a GM is also because... The GM's the person who's doing a lot of the hard yards um, prepping the adventure. If you are going to give your players three, usually the way I do it is I just come to my players, I'm like, I'm really excited to run this, and then I try to make it seem exciting for them. Um, or, you know, I'll take suggestions as well. But but I think it's important as a GM to ensure that you're excited for the three options or the two options that you present your players with. Um, I would uh, not like to be into in a situation where I I chose three options because I thought I had to suggest three and then the players picked one that they thought was really great, but I wasn't super enthusiastic to run for whatever reason. Um, so I just make sure that, like, what, even if those options are vastly different, um, between themselves, um, just make sure that you're keen, uh, for running all three of them as well. Cause you're the person who's got a, read the whole thing and, and put in the the harder yards each week to prep it and a month or however often you play. So yeah, be enthusiastic about what you want to run.
0: I agree very much with that because I, I'm also at the camp. I love when I live up to the ideal of offering three different and letting them pick. I love when I can Mm. do that, but often my brain is caught on one specific idea. And if I tried to run something else, it would be half-hearted and kind of like meh uh yeah. and it's actually it's really funny that seasons have just come up multiple times incidentally because a thing I've been doing recently and this is not advice this is a ludicrous thing that I've started doing that I probably won't keep doing for long but it's what I've been doing is that I I take lots of movies and books and things that I love and I try to boil down what happens in that movie to like one actionable premise of like you know um you know Robbed the most secure casino in the city, or whatever, right? Like, like <laughs> there you go. There's your Ocean's Eleven one. I had one for Pacific Rim. I had all these different things, and then I divvy them out based on season. I go, this feels like a summer story. <laughs> Put it up there, and I've got it. I've got it based on the Four Humors as well. Um, and so that I'm like, mm, I'm vibing winter for this one, and then I save them and I play them during that season. Um, which again. Not advice. Uh, it's just a thing that I have been doing. Um, the other thing worth mentioning is uh, that if you're if you're seeking out an idea that you and your players are hyped for, again, I feel like I bring this up all the time. Session zero is a malleable thing. Yeah. You can sit down for a session zero and go, hey, I'm really hyped to play a game with you all but I don't know what to play yet. Hey, everyone bring three ideas that you would be excited to play. And then you sit down and you start pitching ideas and then someone will go, oh, that's really cool. What if this as well? What if that as well? And eventually you'll get an idea that you will start snowballing on and you get really excited for and then you can start sort of building your characters and the concept from there. Um, and you can, you can do that. There's, there are rules against that. That's allowed.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea is like asking, play, like, let's all just, you know, not everybody has to bring one, but like, let's bring adventures together, even systems together and discuss what we're um, excited to to play. I think uh, as well, if we kind of branch this discussion a little bit into systems as well, because something I want to do this year is really try to to play more systems. Um, and a question we get a lot on the lore cast is like, you should play this game or you, you know, why haven't you tried this? Um, one week everybody had it in for Shadow Dark for some reason. We just got like three or four comments in a row of just like Shadow Dark, Shadow Dark, Shadow. I don't know whether it released that week or something. Um, but uh, you know, you're talking about this, the the system you want to play, but also uh, like what a campaign in that system might be like. So, for example, I got given the Alien RPG uh, as a birthday present actually uh, in December, and uh, I'm anticipating that's kind of like a four to eight session kind of campaign right it's a it's a horror story um it's a you know cinematic i'm anticipating in some capacity i don't really know much about the system apart from the fact that it tries to recreate um alien um and i'm excited to run it uh, and excited to experience it but also knowing that that's probably a very different thing from you know the the year long arc that might be a dnd campaign or multiple year long arc that might be a dnd campaign or the six month uh thing that might be a vampire masquerade campaign, you know, where you sort of have a a bit of an arc and then you go play something else. (laughs) Uh, Be positive. Be positive. How do you go about, like, choosing system? Is it more or less the same of of vox popping your players?
0: Is it?
3: I. mm. Yes. (laughs) All three of you.
1: That was fun.
3: Yes. Vox popping players is a great idea when it comes to choosing system. You you definitely want to choose a system that everyone uh, is on board for. But I do think. There's kind of a burden of knowledge that the group's GM typically has to bear, right? Because typically, the one GMing, and this is not this is not universally true, but it is frequently true, the GM of the group is the one most tuned in to what other RPGs are out there because they spend a lot of time learning about this sort of thing. Um, and so, d- typically, the GM will come with, ah, my brain's been set on fire by heart this year this year let's play heart and they're like what's heart and you'll say well it's you know it's kind of like we got a setting that's kind of like slay the spire and it's kind of grungy and magic and it's set in a big metropolis and they're like okay yeah well, we vibe with that let's do it but typically the the players will not have the same level of of amptness that the gm bring the system is going to have so to a certain degree it really relies on you as the GM to sell it rather than sort of democratically deciding that you're going to do this because if they, if you did that, you'd play nothing but D and D
2: and one shots are your friend. Mm. Get the one shot in, see how that goes, see how everyone vibes with it. Don't say this is going to be a campaign. Say, this is going to be something we do tonight. If everyone loves it, we'll do it again the next week. Some games are great for one shots. And as soon as you get that fourth session, You say, why are we still playing this game? Uh, And you'll find that out.
0: I I maintain my old trick that works for getting people to start playing tabletop RPGs in the first place. You can do that again for getting them to try a different game that they're not as comfortable Mm. with. You can be like, it's my birthday and all I want to do for my birthday is Play mothership, right? <laughs> and trick everyone into playing it. And then they'll go, hey, wait, actually that was fun.
1: <laughs> I did that a couple of years ago with The Witcher RPG. That's how I got yes! my friends to play that.
0: <laughs> See, guilt works. Um, it does. It's a good system. Uh, but uh yeah, no, it's definitely vox pop your players. It's good to play a thing that everyone wants to play. But I think that people can get very comfortable with a system that they're familiar with because it is is—it is work learning a new thing. Um, and so you might have to uh, occasionally curate your group of players and go, these are the ones who are most open to new stuff. I'm going to get them together to try out this this thing that I want to try.
1: I, I think um, starting, not, not that this necessarily was intended to become a discussion about starting new systems, but I think starting small, like one-shots, as Sean said, um, and, and that burden that is on the GM is, is good to be mindful of during uh, the initial lockdowns back in 2020. I was like, I am going to learn Call of Cthulhu and I am going to run a campaign in Call of Cthulhu and it'll be just like running a DD campaign. And we never s- even started. And it was because, um, I, I, my approach to it was how I was prepping my d d campaigns at the time, which was inventing virtually everything from scratch, you know, porting in some resources, but I didn't. I don't know if it's not that they exist as much for Call of Cthulhu as 5e. I assume that's probably true, but also I didn't know where to go to look for resources for Call of Cthulhu in terms of importing stat blocks or magic items. Those things probably aren't even important uh in Call of Cthulhu, you know? And so starting small and using a starter adventure or something like that uh, is a good way for a GM to be able to wrap their head around a new system without, you know, deciding, all right, we're doing six months of you know, Pathfinder now, we've gone from 5 E to Pathfinder, six-month Pathfinder campaign, let's do it. Maybe try one-shot, you know, of a pre, pre-canned adventure or something like that um, just to wet your toes a little so it's not too much work on your own shoulders because um, you may never get started. Speaking of never getting started, how do you know when to end is hmm. Edward's question, uh, who asks, I don't think we've answered this question. We've had it on our... Um, We've had it on our run sheet a few times, but we haven't gotten to it. It's because I want to pair it with another question. Uh, but the first one comes from Edward, who's asking level cap preferences. Uh, recent third-party releases, including Lord of the Rings 5e, uh, and I believe, I'm not sure the, if this is still the case with how they've been iterating on it, but the MCDM RPG uh, have a level cap of 10. Uh, I know Saga of the Seasons, uh, which James mentioned just before, has a level cap of, is it 13 is the, when that adventure ends, or is it 12? Um, but it's a relatively kind of, it it doesn't go too high. Um, What is the preferred level cap um, is the first question. And the second question, which I think we might get some interesting answers to is what informs a level cap in a tabletop RPG in both an adventure and a system? Let's just say.
0: I love this question. Um, I think it's so interesting to think about all the time because I don't have, I genuinely don't have like a preference of like, this is, this is how many levels you should have. But it says a lot about game design when you talk about leveling, right? So, so there are some games that have no kind of um, uh, uh, progress, I guess is the word I'm going to use in terms of like your character doesn't gain new things as you go along. The point of those games is the story. And then there are games where uh, progression is not levelized. It's just, you know, individual abilities or, or things will change like in Monster of the Week. Um, or then you get games where it's, it, it is kind of the standard that we expect of Pokemon or d is, you know, you're gaining levels as you go along. And with each new level, you get a new higher number and other numbers also get higher and you maybe get an ability here and there. Um, I do think it is interesting that... Um, certainly in in my opinion, you look at, you know, subclass features, class features, maybe with the exception of things like spell casting in a game like fifth edition, and you could kind of cut all the chaff and and wipe away all the things that are that are really ribbons, that are really just like, oh, I don't know, you get a a tiny little like token here. And once you get all the good stuff, you condense it down and it probably is about ten levels worth of stuff. Um, sure. in my personal opinion, other people are free to disagree, but, um, I don't think that there are necessarily 20 levels worth of actually cool meaty content in there. So for me, it, you, you look at a system like uh fifth edition and it feels like, oh, we have to make it 20 levels. So we'll stretch it to be that. Um, I think that a lot of designs that are coming out now are looking similarly and going, well, why stretch it out? Um, but I think then you end up doing a similar thing where you go, okay, well, what's, what's the other round number that we can reach? 10. That's a nice round number. <laughs> um, so it's exciting when you get a game that is literally like, I don't know, we came up with 13 levels worth of stuff. So there are 13 levels. That's cool. I love it when they just go, I don't know, that's where we ended. That's neat. But you, you end up with bizarre things like, um, like evidently different classes don't necessarily have. 20 levels worth of, you know, this class might have 16 levels worth of cool stuff we thought of. The monk has a lot of cool different things that they get. Whether they are powerful or not is a different question.
1: (laughs) 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 Whoa, Dale, just tone it down a bit there, would you? That's uh, (laughs) New (laughs) (laughs) New Year's resolution, be positive.
0: (laughs) That's your New Year's resolution, to be negative. Um, And then, you know, the bard might have 12 and the fighter might have 6. Like, they all have different amounts, but because you're wanting to, to balance Balance the game across these classes. Now you're in a position where you have to try to even the mountain. So then the number keeps kind of creeping up and creeping down and, and shuffling all around as you try to balance the thing. Um, which is why I kind of ultimately in personal taste am now leaning in a direction of not levelized progression. Um, but I'm excited to see people just kind of playing with that formula to see what it is because it, it does send a message, right? If you say there are twenty levels, that makes a that makes a player and a DM feel like, oh well, if we want it to be a complete campaign, we have to keep playing until we reach level twenty. Oh, yeah. And if they wanted to keep playing beyond that, but there's no more levels, so we have to end at level twenty. And I think that um, choosing a level cap sends a, a message, whether you want it to or not. Um, but
1: I think yeah. I think that's very true. Just in quickly in terms of people feeling like they're missing out on high level content in Fifth Edition because those extra you know, five to seven to eight levels are there, you know, and and I've never played long form uh, campaigns at those high levels for reasons I might get into in a little bit, but there's always people crying out. We need more high level content, more high level content, and I think part of that is simply because they exist, you know, the game changes so radically once you get to those higher levels. Um, but the fact that they're there makes people feel like they're missing out, even if that's not necessarily, like they could have gotten more powerful. They could have gone further, even if the story has, you know, functionally ended.
0: I'd just like to throw out there that Dan Dillon is in chat. Ooh. Welcome,
3: Dan. What up, Dan? <laughs> hey, Dan.
2: Yeah, the the question for me, the first thing I thought of was Spinal Tap, would, uh, would these go to 11? Well, why don't you just make <laughs> 10 louder? does but, but, these <laughs> go to 11. <laughs> and And... You know, D&D, uh, D&D uh, role-playing games are like that. Well, the ones with leveling systems, right? You can do anything you want. The question then is, what narratively or mechanically is the difference between level one and level two, level two and level three? Do you, does the game expect years to pass between levels? Then you're going to want to yeah. do one thing. Are minutes going to pass between levels? Then you're going to want to do something else. The, the experience for new players versus exper- uh, experienced players might change depending on what you do. Every game should be different with how it treats levels and caps, depending on those questions.
3: I've been talking about seasons a lot in this episode, and maybe it's just because a new year has started. <laughs> but D&D also divides itself very neatly into four. Um fifth edition, that is, with its four tiers of play. And I really think that each one of those tiers is essentially a different game using the same engine. Because the things uh, the game encourages you to do, especially uh, with regards to its spells, but also even with uh, more general class features, really scale up intensely. Uh, in, In many ways, D&D's numbers, its ability scores and its DCs and stuff like that are are secondary to the effects, the the narrative or mechanical effects of the different spells and features that come online, particularly at those breakpoints at fifth level, at 11th level, at 16th uh, or 17th. the, those breakpoints for for the different tiers really put you into an entirely different genre, and the the Dungeon Master's Guide does a passable job of explaining that. But you know, there there were older editions of the game, like what we now call kind of historically BECMI, Basic, Expert, Companion, Master, and Immortals. Different sets of D anD D rules in the sort of first edition era, where you know, basic D&D took you through levels one through three. And that was one kind of genre of play. The expert rules took you, I think from fourth to 10th. Uh, and each one of these, eventually Immortals gets you to like 33 plus or something like that. It's a different era. Uh, but those games were very explicitly delineating their level ranges into different play experiences. And one great way to Create boundaries for the beginning and end of your campaign is to use play experience as guideposts. Um, if you can put the climax of your adventure at the moment when the wizard gets fly and fireball and the fighter is mowing through enemies with two attacks per turn, that's a great way to end on a high note when you've hit that fifth- level power spike, or, you know, at the 11th- level power spike, or something like that.
0: This discussion also dovetails in uh, really nicely with a discussion of what games reward you with, right? So that's a, a core sure. element of game design is you encourage a certain style of play by rewarding it. Um, and in games uh, like d d games that, are, that follow that same system, you're really rewarding people with leveling up. You get this cool new thing that you can do. If you, if you play enough times, if you do enough adventuring, if you gain enough experience points, you will hit this stage where now you can fly. And so that is the reward. And we, I, again, this is just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this because it's, it was part of a discussion that I had with Matt about the MCDM game is the idea of even decoupling. You can have levels, but not have the levels be rewards. And. Sure. That's an interesting idea as well. This idea of like, we, we have games that we see that, that are very cool and successful where the reward is not that. The reward is the story. The, the reward is, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, but the idea of keeping levels and having the reward be a different thing, that's kind of exciting new territory for me. For me, again, I haven't been around for that long. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just I'm kind of excited that we're really getting into a zone where, where different games are designing in very different ways around the idea of rewards and the idea of levels.
1: I think for me, um, you know, Sean was saying before, there's lots of different reasons to, you know, cap at different levels or, or, or structure your game in different ways. Um, and I think what James was saying about um, the game feels very different at the different tiers. It's almost playing a different game at that point is very true. Um, and for me, it's about capturing tone and atmosphere because I'm that guy, you know, I, I'm about, the, I want the, the, the rewards of the game to be, uh, story-based and mm. uh, character development-based rather than necessarily power-based, Yeah, um, which is how 5e is largely structured. Uh, and so I try to never go kind of above, like, level 10. Like, none of my campaigns have really gone above, like, level 8 or 9 even because uh, Dan was just saying in the chat before, he, he feels that 5e only really has three tiers, uh, which is... Uh, 1 to 4, I think you said 5 to 16, and then there's a jump at 17. I've never really gotten high enough to experience that jump uh, at 17, at least not in a campaign. But the the 4 to 5 jump is really obvious. You know, you get the multi-attack and third-level spells being the, the big things that kind of open it up more.
0: It's wild but that third level isn't a bigger jump. <laughs> mm. Well, it's not well, a jump I in think power, I
1: guess.
2: I, I think it is. Ooh. I think level 1 is its own tier. I think... Levels two through four are their own tiers, uh, and then we can we can okay. argue well, no. within there.
0: Now my well, question is, w- how do you define the the difference between level one and level two?
2: The difference between level one and level two is simply hit points. Oh. It's simply yeah, being able to hit- take their
1: felt oh, glove off.
0: I, me- I measure the hit point jump at level three. I do a, a stupid uh, house rule thing where I have. Um, I have a like, major injuries table, but for me, it doesn't come into play until you hit level three. Because I was like, you need to have enough hit points for this to actually
3: mm. be worthwhile. No, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, your hit points literally double uh, in some cases at second level. Yeah. Well, maybe not literally. No, no, you're right. I, I think it is more close to doubling from first to third level just because of the Let max Let's think of it this way. Anyway, if
0: you're a right. wizard and you have a zero card bonus and you roll a six on your second... Okay.
3: I think
1: there's definitely a. a it's not a, a one level jump, but there is a shift. For me, the sweet spot of five e, and it's a very narrow sweet spot, is like fifth to I think seventh level or something like that. Because at eighth and ninth level and tenth level, and I can't remember exactly which is which, but you start to unlock those fifth and sixth level spell slots, and uh, or fourth and even fourth and fifth level spell slots. And they're not, um, you know, they're not entirely game breaking. It's not a wish spell. They're not ninth level spells. But that's when those spells start to come out. That right, is just like, I don't want to deal fifth, with this. Um, well, fireball is a third level. It's yeah, third yeah, you, get it, spell, fifth fifth you get it at fifth level. level <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yes. But then you <laughs> get, I think the it,
0: naming of spell level. It's
1: fine. I think. <laughs> I think it's a. I think it's a fourth <laughs> level spell. But like sickening radiance is like just this dome that comes down. And so if you're like, you know, yeah, this horde of zombies or goblins or cobalt or this horde of enemies, whatever they are, and that dome of sickening radiance just hits the battlefield, you start to experience these spells of, I, just, I don't want to deal with this, um, which can really change the tone when you're trying to build up a, an atmosphere of danger. Um, and even if it's, they don't have many of them to use, as a party they have auto-escape options that just kind of remove the sense of danger uh, within the game. Um, and, and they start to feel a little bit more demigoddy, superhero uh, around those levels in a way that uh, is not necessarily the case at uh fifth level or sixth level.
0: Uh, Hadn't um, fallen in, in chat points out that Sean is right. The, the difference between for hit points level one and level two, it's not even about doubling or anything like that. It's just not dying from a single roll anymore. And yeah. that H- is a huge, it. yeah. That, right. yeah. It's the number one of points.
2: Point. It's that negative hit point death as much as it is the positive hit points.
3: Yes. Mm, yeah. True, One of- lucky goblin damage roll on a wizard with, you know, seven hit points. 1d6 plus one, down. Zero from, from full to zero in one go. Absolutely.
1: Speaking of, of caps, though, and I think, Sean, you, you made a, a sound analogy before. Even though I'll ne- probably never play a full campaign to 20- I'm glad that the game goes higher than where I want to uh, where I want to necessarily get to because I would feel limited if it capped at 10. Probably wouldn't feel limited if it capped at 15 instead, but just like a, a TV channel, you want the volume to go a little bit higher than what you actually <laughs> want it to be at just so you never feel That's so like...
0: real and I don't know why. <laughs> Psychology is so important to game design. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now I'm curious
0: though because you say that so level cap for game design is one thing, but what's everyone's personal like level cap of where you tend to stop running? Because Ben says ten, I think mine is probably around twelve.
2: Usually, it's around fourteen for me in the campaigns I've been running.
3: Yeah, I think my current campaign is probably going to end around thirteen. Okay, okay, okay. 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 I wonder. Okay. I because like all of the hardcover campaigns that Wizards puts out usually go from around one to thirteen or one to ten. I wonder if there's like if there's a lot of data to back that up because they've got all the data from D and D beyond right now. And I think that the real hard data, every time I hear about it, it's like most campaigns go from like level one to level six. That's where the, that's where the, um, the, the modal average of campaigns lines up. But
1: I, I, I would suggest, I mean, I think cause they didn't have access to that data unless D and D beyond were sharing it before last year. Right. When was it the year yeah. before D and D beyond got, got purchased,
3: no, would, no, yeah, would, that's true. Because all the early campaigns, like 2014 on, were still one through thirteen. So they had a I, sense.
1: I think it's because that's when it when the the game really starts to shift. Like undeniably so. Like I said, I think it shifts kind of at eighth, ninth level, but it starts to shift undeniably so to the point where, okay, the, the, they're pretty. Pow- we, we are we are talking like planes and gods and demigods at this point they're no longer concerned about the kingdom, so to speak. And if you're, um, if you're running a game in, I don't know, Dragonlance or something or Grim Hollow where the concern is about the kingdom, um, once you hit 13, it's like, wow, you know, you, you step through a portal and now you're in the ethereal expanse. Have fun. Like you, this, this campaign, this story is no longer relevant to you past those levels. And I think that's maybe just an organic thing that they found in writing those adventures at a guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, We've got Bardsforge in chat who says, I've run eight campaigns from one to 20 and two more to 16. I think you might be the DM of legend. (laughs) (laughs) That might be you. Um,
1: Well, speaking of uh, level caps, let's uh, squeak in this one last question here. Uh, I assume it might be the last question. Maybe not. Depends on how quick the answers are from Matt. Uh, who's asking about epic tier campaigns, tip for running games above level 14 and slash or ending a campaign well. When do you know it's time to finish the campaign, even if they haven't reached 20th level?
0: My answer's short. I've never done it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Go back and look at what your players want and look at the seeds you have planted earlier in the campaign. Look for the gifts you've given yourself while you've been DMing things that you maybe didn't plan on, but put in, uh, can you grow larger plots from those, uh, seeds Can you make use of those gifts you've given yourself or that your players have given you? If, uh, if the growth is gone, if it's grown as far as it can, and you really can't see a way forward, it's a good time to stop, stop the campaign. If you do have Mm. those, those things. If you do have ideas, if you do have the player enthusiasm to continue, then then keep going. If not, there are many other adventures and many other games out there that uh, are waiting to be planted. So go to those instead.
3: Sean, you bring up a good point, which is that sometimes the spark just kind of fizzles. And if mm-hmm. you sense that happening, that's a great time to end the campaign, but do your best to give it a good send off, right? Even mm-hmm. if you have to move forward your plans even if you're like me and one of the first things you do when you start a campaign to your own frustration is think of the end uh find a way to make either that ending or an ending be satisfying move up the time table make it work somehow but make sure that people do, do whatever you can to not make the end of your campaign a slog basically <laughs>
0: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Primrose Frost in chat has a good addition to what, jo- to what Sean was saying. They say, also, maybe check in with your players to make sure that the things that they said they want earlier in the campaign are still what they want
3: now, Ooh, which is yes. very wise.
0: I will also say uh, from a player perspective, I did recently play in just a one shot that was 16th level and it was really fun. I had a great time. The one thing I would say is I think at a certain point, Stop worrying about balancing encounters. I, I wanted I wanted so much stuff thrown at us and we handled everything possibly a little bit too well.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think we touched on it a moment ago, which is appreciating that there is a shift in the game when you're getting that high in level that, you know, the, the story of the kingdom you've been telling might not be relevant to the power level of your players anymore and you might mm. have to start uh making things a little bit more mythological if they've been more grounded so far or you might need to you know jump into another plane or you might need to you know maybe cap off the current campaign you're playing but if the player's enthusiasm is to play the higher levels be like all right well now we're going to start another campaign but we're going to start at 14th level and and see how long this goes Mm, you know and turn Um, of fortune's
2: wheel the planescape adventure jumps you right up to the high levels uh with, with, uh, do that if your players oh we really want a 20th level adventure okay we'll end it at level 12 but years pass you're now level 20 here you go let's let's do this nothing wrong with that
0: yes yeah. I'm suddenly having a vision of myself running high level adventures and just pr- prepping the game and being like mm-hmm. is 14 vampires too many Nah, throw them
1: all in. <laughs> Fourteen vampires is never too many, but only seven can rule at a time.
3: Not when you've got a sunbeam anyway, in the chamber, it's problem. not. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> when you said in the chamber, do you mean like in the chamber of the gun that you're yeah, just imagine a, like a, a monster bazooka. hunter? <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: yeah, load in the just, sunbeam.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I just love the idea of like a, a Hellboy-style pistol. He's just like loads in the sunbeam and clicks the chamber closed. This one's yeah. just
0: for my Buffy fans out there. Season two, Buffy versus the judge. You get it.
1: All right. And let's go. One last question. I lied before. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, this coming in from Sean. Is this, this
0: our is a- new year?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yes. I don't know whether you're pleased or displeased, Dale. I can't tell. I'm always
0: um, a fan of lying. <laughs> oh, okay. All right.
1: That'll be a Dale Kingsmill quote for the Ellie's this That's year. Right. Um
0: Oh, that's my Sean... New Year's resolution to try to actually keep track of things that happen so that I have yeah. something for the Yellies.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Sean, uh, as in different Sean, uh, Sean, S-E-A-N, uh, is asking about replacing stun, which is something that I've been increasingly thinking about in my game, even though stun hasn't come up in a while. Um, because D&D turns can take 10 minutes or more between them, um, well, wow, I don't think that's a problem explicit to d and I also experienced that a bit with board games, but that's a separate discussion. Because turns can take a while to come back to in D&D, do conditions like stun or paralysis, I think I added paralysis, he was specifically talking stun, make sense as fun mechanics? Uh, have we ever used alternatives like numb, so no bonus action, uh, banishment, they go fight a devil in another dimension for a few turns, uh, or disorientation where they can't cast first level spells? Um, some, of being, some of Sean's solutions in the past. Have we ever used any of these suggestions? Uh, and I thought just broadening this out to other conditions you might have
2: incorporated into your game as well. It's a nice question because it's sense and it's fun and it's mechanics. Three words in the question that we could argue about for an hour about what that means. But they make sense in d because it's hard to find consequences other than losing hit points. Mm-hmm. So that's why these things are there. The 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 bigger question is, why are you taking 10 minutes between turns? Should a game take 10 minutes between sh- turns? Should players be willing to sit there 10 minutes or 20 minutes and wait? If the game is not engaging to players who are not acting, then is that a problem with a rule that makes them not act? Or is that a problem with the game itself? Or is that a problem with the players? Right. These are, these are all questions. Uh, stun is in what, when, when you're designing a monster, there are actual like CR equivalents for different conditions that they put on you, which basically can break down to hit points. So, how many hit points is stun worth? What you can do is say, okay, player, you are stunned. You give up a quarter of your hit points and you can ignore the stun condition this round and you can act. That's a house rule that you can use that mechanically uh, lets the player act while being a consequence other than not being able to take an action. Uh, Is that perfect? No, but it's something. Uh, But this is a very, we could spend the full hour show talking about this question. Dale, is that a hand raised? I'm-
0: yeah, oh, this is this is a thing my friend did one time and I thought it was so silly. I call it the face rhino, but it means I have a thing to say that I don't want to forget, but I know that Joey was going to speak first.
3: No, no, you go ahead, Dale.
0: <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that that's, um, there's there's a, a house rule that isn't mine that I took from the internet that I uh, like to use that they called bite the bullet, um, which is just, you know, you've got your, uh, your big bad evil guy. It's kind of instead of um, uh, legendary resistances. You have Big Bad Evil Guy, they get hit with, you know, Stunning Strike or whatever, they fail their saving throw. Um, the idea is that on their turn they can bite the bullet and they can lose a, a chunk of their hit points in order to overcome whatever effect is is on top of them. And it just lets them get back into the fight. It makes the fight not boring because it is. it is worth noting that it is – it's boring on both ends, right? If a player yeah. is stunned and they have to sit there and wait and they don't get to do anything, it's boring for the player. If the bad guy gets stunned and never gets sacked, it's also boring for the players. Um, so having these little things built in that are just like, okay, uh, you get this big bonus, but you uh, it happens at a consequence. I really love those. And I love the idea of giving that to players. And I don't know why I never thought of that before.
3: I was going to say something very similar to what you wound up saying, Sean. It's like, I, I would love to have some kind of Thing where you could, when you received stun, you could pay some kind of hit point cost to reduce it in effectiveness to, like, you know, disadvantage on something or other. I like the sort of straightforward simplicity of what you suggested, though, because that's the crux of what we're talking about here, right? Stun really sucks for player characters, but it's a great mechanic for players to use against monsters in certain circumstances. It's great, and maybe even. Necessary when you play D and D fights the way D and D fights are designed to be played, which is to say, several level appropriate threats at once, rather than one solo boss. Uh, which is so frustrating because fiction encourages us to want solo bosses. <laughs> like whether whether it's movies or stories or you know, Dark Souls style video games, solo bosses are really really cool, and D and D does them really really poorly for a variety of reasons and stun is just one part of that puzzle
2: what's a game out there that is fun even though you may be sitting and watching for 10 minutes while between turns is there such Mm. a game and if so what lessons can we learn from that mm. the the
1: i'm gonna bring up the witcher we're gonna have an official witcher watch within the episode a witcher Um, watch I've only played it – admittedly, I've only played it once, but my experience of it was was pretty good for two reasons that I suspect the game does well, but I would need further investigation to really be able to confirm. But those two things are thusly. One um, – pardon me – positioning really matters uh, in The Witcher because your facing matters, and so monsters can flank you, which means that a fight against multiple monsters is really dangerous if you don't have uh, allies, uh, and so I'm kind of curious to try that game with one big monster fighting, uh, the party and seeing what happens, whether it's more engineered towards that, because The Witcher as a, as a franchise is kind of engineered towards, you know, there's a problem in the woods, let's go slay the monster. Um, but to answer your actual question, Sean, the thing that The Witcher does is to make an attack and, and people are gonna have different, um, their mileage will vary with this. To make an attack in The Witcher, It's a little bit of a flow chart that you have to go through to be able to get to the result. Um, A flow chart, I suspect, once you get good at the game, once you get used to the game, you can kind of get through pretty quickly. But what I like about it is that as a defender, you get to respond to the attack. So you can either just take it, You can try to avoid it by dodging out of the way. You can try to block it with your weapon or you can try to parry it, which leaves the opponent opened and sort of like slightly stunned or something to my memory, which means that it's kind of the thing that Infinity, the the war game says, their tagline is it's always your turn because you always have choices to make and reactions to make uh, based on what your opponent is doing. And, and it's a game, I've been thinking th- about this a little bit recently where, you know, the MCDM game tries to solve that null result um, situation by just having attacks basically always hit. But we found that there was something that felt really passive about that when we play tested it at, at packs, especially when you automatically do damage back to the, to the uh, foe that missed you. Um, the way the Witcher handles it is I think you can still end up with a null result, but you made a choice and rolled a dice. To create that null result, or or uh, try to avoid that null result, Mm. if you're the aggressor, you know. And if you choose, is it about
0: is it about like effect, or is it about engagement? Is about action.
1: Correct, correct, and and also like blocking and parrying are kind of functionally the same thing, but blocking is I use my weapon to block their blow, whereas parrying is I swing my weapon at theirs to try to knock it out of the way, which is a higher risk but higher reward. And you can damage your weapon in doing that, and so there is a choice that you're making. Like it's an engaging choice of like it feels like a melee, you know, that you're like a dance that you're uh, in, rather than just like swing and and hit or miss.
3: This is you know it's a little off topic, but it it dovetails really nicely with what you're saying about (laughs) making active defensive roles rather than active offensive roles. I really, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot ever since we played the NCDM RPG of well. What if the burden of rolling to dodge was on the person being attacked always rather than the burden of rolling to hit being on the person attacking? Because that does get at the, it's always your turn idea. It puts engagement on the person who is, you know, being aggressed upon. There's already engagement on the aggressor side because you're deciding what to do and upon whom to do it. So rather than being, you know, on your phone the whole time, when it's not your turn, you kind of always have to be ready to make a reactive roll. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that just puts you in more situations where you're, if you're going to be on your phone anyway, you're on your phone and someone has to nudge you and be like, hey, dude, you're being attacked. I was like, oh, go right, oh, right, 13. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. And, <laughs> and,
2: and that point right there is the interesting one to me because what we're talking about here is adding mechanics to the, to the thing that's off turn right? It's not your turn, but you still have to do things. You have to pay attention. You have to do this. For the people who are stunned, who can't do it, or are away from the battle, now instead of 10 minutes between turns, it's now 20 minutes between turns. <laughs> right, Because we're not focusing on the story of what's happening. We're focusing on these roles and this and that, and yet we're t- focusing on the tactics. So maybe no. what we need to do is make a game that the story is interesting as well as the mechanics so that we don't mind the fact that there's 20 minutes before we get to act because it's
0: really cool what's happening. Well, this is, this is my thing that, that's coming up, right? We're all talking about how do we avoid the null result? It's always your turn. These are all good thoughts. But I think part of the issue is not just, oh, what am I doing during the enemy's turn, right? Reacting to the enemy's turn. Part of the problem is all of your allies who are taking their turn. So if you're in a party of five and you're each taking, you know, five minutes to to do your thing, you have to be interested in what they're doing. And so to to this question, are there other games that make it interesting when it's not your turn to just be engaged and watch what's happening? The, the thing that's come up in chat that I think is really good is Jenga and Dread, right? Dread is <laughs> the tabletop RPG based on Jenga, and so you know you are engaged, you are watching what is happening, what's going to happen when this person pulls their block, um, and how do, how do you do that in a dice-based game? I don't know the answer!
3: In Jenga, one of the things that keeps you engaged off-turn, or in, in Dread, any game that uses Jenga as a resolution system, one of the things that keeps you engaged off-turn is the sense that, any, that things could go very wrong at any moment. Right, there's tension constantly, and this is why I think paralyzed is not nearly as big a problem as stunned, even though it accomplishes basically the same thing that we're talking about. You skip your turn, but paralyzed is terrifying because any attack against you is devastating. Right, if you get hit in melee, it's an automatic critical hit. You, when you're paralyzed, you're in constant tension. Because if that, you know, that opening is taken advantage of, you're, you're screwed. Um, And maybe that's an argument for, you know, kind of nudging stunned in one way or the other, probably, you know, into less of a, of a bad thing. It's just, it lives in this middle gray zone of kind of boringness that doesn't have either you're still doing something. So you're engaged versus you're not doing anything but things could go terribly wrong at any point, right? There, there's like a gray zone of no interest that stunned lives in.
1: I think the, the two things I quickly want to throw in here, um, Let's go with the other thought first, which is uh, something that I've been experimenting with a little bit lately, uh, which has been really inspired by God of War, the the video game. I played mm-hmm. Valhalla uh, over Christmas. It's fantastic. It probably shouldn't technically count, but Valhalla is 100% my game of the year because I just love God of War so much. Um, not just the, the story of it, but the mechanics uh, and the fights are really engaging, the way that they mix up how the different enemies work. And I was reminded of some mechanics that I want to try and have since tried in 5th edition which is, uh, and I'm going to get the names of the monsters wrong, but it's like a, a a spark or a wisp or something. It's like just this little rune stone that floats around and does pretty minimal damage to you if it can do damage at all. But if there are three of them, they connect together and become uh, a much more dangerous enemy. And then when that enemy is defeated, they'll split apart into the three again. But you have to destroy one before they get the chance to to recombine again, or it just becomes an endless cycle of splitting and combining, splitting and combining. Um, and so I tried that recently in, in a session of D&D with a little added mechanic, which was that these, these I called them living runestones. I actually borrowed some mechanics from Valica. Um, I decided that these are like a Valican construct um, and that they, uh, they're they tied to a physical, um, like a can, let's call it, like a physical runestone, like a, a runestone built into the ground that's like, you know, five feet tall or something like that, um, which is also a mechanic borrowed from God of War because these other monsters called Wraiths or something, you get them down to a certain point of health and then their rune stones around the battlefield all light up and you have to destroy one of them before you can hurt the monster again. So I kind of combined these two ideas so that uh, these stones are going to continue splitting and then regrouping unless you get rid of all of their health first before they can recombine again. Or if you destroy one of the standing runestones and attack that instead, that will make one of them inert within the construct, and it will not they'll lose power one way or the other anyway. So it was kind of like a, a puzzle monster. And puzzle monsters are a deft touch in 5e because uh, I, I got really angry at the adamantine golem thing in Boulder's Gate because by the time I'd solved the puzzle, it was already too late. I couldn't recover. The party would... I just didn't have act- the action economy to... To beat it anymore and it was a really frustrating experience and you definitely don't want that to happen when a tpk mm. is on the table uh, rather than loading a, a save state mm-hmm. but uh my wife who usually doesn't love combat that much said that she was actually quite engaged because she felt like she was solving something and she had to think about something between her turns um because she's like okay well that you know worked or seemed to have some effect okay what can i do next turn Uh, to help solve this puzzle. Um, And so I just thought that was an interesting um, kind of experiment. And I want to continue to experiment with these different ways of manipulating the 5E mechanics to make uh, engagements more um, engaging um, in in interesting ways.
0: Um, Um, The other thought... Sorry, oh, go ahead. No, go, go, no, no. No, no,
1: no, no, no. You go. Genuinely,
0: ahead you... do your other thought. This is a this is an after your other thought thing.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> the other thought is I I have started experimenting with other conditions, and I don't know whether these should be replacements to stun or not. Um, uh, but you can try them. I know uh, these aren't original either. I either got them off the internet or something. But I think uh uh M- MCDM or, or Flea Mortals calls it dazed, which is like you you can take an action or a bonus action, but you can't take both. Uh, which I kind of like as an alternative. It means you can do something, but you can't do everything. Or it might even be movement action, bonus action, choose one. Um, I like that as an alternative to stun. Not being able... The, Grim Hollow has its own dazed, which is you can't concentrate on spells um, while dazed. But I am I actually kind of like the idea of buffing that to you can't cast spells either, so you can't just cast a new spell. Um, uh, uh, conditions like... I don't know, You even like beneficial conditions, you become immune to damage if you take less than 10 damage on your turn um, or you ignore the first 10 damage dealt to you and only take anything exceeding that as some kind of like resistance. Um, uh, yeah, just, just playing around with those as alternatives to to stunned possibly um, is a, a another way to go.
0: The thing I was going to say is just uh, <laughs> we've been given... In, in chat, uh, Michael J. Pastor has, has given a link to his blog, uh, Tabula Hordina, where we have been awarded the 2023 Ellie Award for being the number one podcast in all the realms. <laughs> Goes to the Eldridge Lawcast for excellence in broadcasting, releasing a new episode every week for the last two years, and most of all, providing a million laughs to Dante <laughs> okay. Ben, James, Dale, and Sean. And that's the cutest thing in the world. <laughs>
1: Uh, we appreciate that very, very much. Mm-hmm. Um, w- w- with that slight qualifier, I apologize if you are listening to this on the audio platforms. The episode from last week <gasps> did not get uploaded to Spotify. <gasps> it only got uploaded to YouTube. This
0: is the first scandal of 2024.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, see, this is my apology video. Uh, I know exactly why it happened. I apologize if you're listening on Spotify. If you are, that episode should be up now because I'm going to upload it before this one goes live. Uh, If you watch us in Twitch and then you're going to go listen to it on Spotify, that episode, which was our panel from PAX Oz, will be up uh, by the time you're hearing this as well. So you get two episodes this week on Spotify. Um, If you didn't get one last week, uh, and there's no if or buts about it, you didn't because I I forgot to upload it because I was on holiday. My apologies. My apologies. Um, or it's on YouTube if you want to go listen to it uh, right now, um, as in right this minute, as in when we're recording this. Um, so, yeah, my apologies. But but thank you for the, the award nonetheless. <laughs> With that said, we should probably get out of here because we are way over time and Dante still has to edit this together. My apologies, Dante. I thought that was going to be a quick one, but it wasn't. Um, uh, so let's get out of here. Thank you so much for joining us in the Twitch chat. We record Tuesday at 10 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time or Monday 6 p.m eastern standard time 3 p.m pacific standard time thank you sean uh for the hand signal so i can remember that we need little signs to come up (laughs) Uh, so if you want to come hang out with us on twitch ask us questions directly there interact with us we love having the chat there uh please chat as much as you like because uh it's it feels nice hanging out with the community uh on a on a tuesday morning um, otherwise, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, all the good places we're on YouTube. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. It really helps us out, get out to more listeners. Uh, let's try break our record. We had 68% of people listening to the podcast uh, started listening in 2023. Let's see if we can get that percentage even bigger in 2024. Um, my name's been Ben Byrne here with James Hake, Sean Merwin, Dale Kingsmill. If you have an email, send it to podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Uh, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Eldritch Lawcast.
0: We should make a jazz band.
1: Ah, oh, we should. We should do an acapella album. Yeah. <laughs>
3: All
1: right. When we hit 10k <laughs> subscribers, we'll do an acapella album. There you, go. That's right.
3: you heard it here first, folks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Ad last.